Hey there, my name is Johnny and welcome to the podcast. We're here to talk about all things law, but with a particular focus on uh, legal clerkships and legal experiences. I've got Diana here and I might as well let her introduce herself. Diana, give us a quick elevator pitch. Sure. Well, kia ora koutou katou, everyone. My name is Diana Chul, and I'm a Law with Honours and Art student at the University of Auckland in New Zealand uh, with majors in economics and French. I'm someone who's guided by three main values, which are learning, advocacy and justice. I love learning about new things so I can better understand and challenge existing things and maybe even build better things in their place. And for that reason, I've immersed myself into a range of different legal experiences, uh, including work experiences. So I've worked at New Zealand-based commercial law firms and barristers' chambers, as well as in Crown Law and in academia. Uh, and while I'm not working at, um, during my time at university, I'm also a keen mooter. So Johnny and I actually met, um, what, four years ago at the 2015 Sydney Mini, which was a debating tournament, um, but most recently last year at the Australian National Champs for uh, mooting. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Great, great. Well, I mean, you've got a lot of experience there and I can see like this progression from mooting Sorry, uh, debating to mooting. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a bit about your experience at Russell McVeigh? I know that that's one of the like, big law firms in New Zealand, and you mentioned that you did clock there. Yes. Um, so you're right, Johnny. Russell McVeigh is, um, I think, one of the top, uh, uh, in, in our, our top tier of commercial law firms in New Zealand. Um, uh, I worked in the, the litigation team um, under Polly Pope, who's um, one of the partners there. And um, that was my first legal experience. I didn't have very many things to compare um, it to then. Many of my friends at the time were considering jobs in like the professional uh, services um, industry or even like the uh, like um, consulting industry. And so for me, um, what I really loved about working at Russell McVeigh was just being surrounded by people who had chosen law as a career and being surrounded by people who um, in that respect were more like me. Um, I got involved in a range of work there, um, including um, mostly commercial law matters, but also some um, pro bono work as well. So the clerks um, in uh, over that summer were involved with fundraising for particular. Um, uh, uh, how would you describe it? Like like social organisations, um, charities, um, and so that was really fun. Um, and I also got to learn about the practice areas that Russell McVeigh um, does work in. Um, so for someone who uh, was just I think at that point, finding my feet at law school, um, that was um, an a really valuable experience this, just to show me what practicing law might look like in the real world. You mentioned that you didn't really have any uh, legal experience prior to Russell McVeigh. How did you sort of convince uh, a law firm that you would be a good clerk or that you were a suitable clerk, given that you didn't have prior legal experience? What did you sort of talk about during your application and your interview? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll talk about my application first, I guess. Um, so for me, I, um, and feel free, Johnny, because I know you've got a lot of application experience as well. So <laughs> uh, feel free to jump in. Um, for me in particular, what I enjoy doing, what, um, what I tend to do with my cover letters is I have um, divide the cover letter into three main paragraphs. 
So the, the structure that my paragraphs follow are usually, um, firstly, why should the firm pick me? Second, why um, have I picked this industry? So why am I interested in law? And finally, why am I interested in this firm in particular? And I think in my cover letter, um, while I could not point to any experiences uh, before that I had in the legal profession, I was able to point to experiences that I'd done at university that could demonstrate to them uh, how I portray the skills that they were looking for. So for example, in that, in that first um, paragraph, like why uh, should this firm pick me? Um, I could talk, um, I might, you know, look at their website and say, well, I, I see they're looking for someone who's uh, good at effective communication and good at teamwork. Mm. Um, how do I demonstrate that? Well, I can point to um, some of my mooting experience, for example. So um, that's something that involves teamwork when you're working with peers or even in groups for international competitions. Uh, and of course, it involves public speaking, critical thinking, and how to form an inquiry and then do legal research to get you to a solution. So it was able to bring those experiences into my cover letter and also then in my subsequent interview that demonstrated to them that while I hadn't worked in the legal profession before, I still had a lot of potential and, and, and these were the sorts of things I was doing at uni in order to build up my potential and build up my skill set. Sure. I feel like there's a good parallel there between your mooting experience and the ending up at the litigation uh, department at Russell McVeigh. In my head, at least, I think prior to working ex extensively in, in any area, moving is probably quite a good simulation of what it works, what it's like to work in a litigation department. Do you think there are any major differences or similarities between what you do in a moot versus what happens in a litigation? Maybe starting with any similarities that do exist and also highlighting any differences that are there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yes, so a major difference, I guess, is um, at least for those graduates entering into commercial law firms, I, I suspect that an opportunity to appear in court um, isn't so forthcoming. Like we wouldn't be able to expect um, a, a, a recent graduate or, or a junior solicitor to um, junior in a case before court uh, within maybe the first two years of, of, of them graduating. And and that and saying that, that means mooting while um, dealing with fictional fact scenarios is an early, very early exposure um, for people to um, experience what talking and making submissions in front of a judge might look like and answering their concerns and questions. Another difference that I've heard, um, because, you know, I'm not practicing yet, I haven't, you know, appeared in a real case yet, is that I, I hear that in real life, judges less uh, will ask fewer questions in um, an actual hearing than they would, say, in a moot environment. And, and that's mm. to be expected, because the way you differentiate good mooters from the best is the way they um, deal with questions and how they answer them, sometimes on the spot, most of the time, um, having mm. prepared uh, answers to anticipated questions. In terms of similarity, though, I, I, I suspect that the formalities of mooting um, are similar to that in real life hearings. Although um, I will qualify this by saying 
the majority of um, hearings, I, I think in the real world are trials and directed at a judge only or maybe to a jury. And so in that case, mooting mm. because it's always appealing a question um, is, is not exactly like a, like a perfect resemblance of that. Um, but in saying that still is a fantastic opportunity to develop skills that are necessary to, um, you know, thrive in a courtroom later on in, in a, a graduate's career. Sure. I think, I mean, I'm in board agreement here. It sounds like mooting is a bit of a baby version of the real litigation work. Right? It sounds like there are less factors of complexity because I feel like as soon as you add a jury, there's an element uh, that requires you to then simplify the language you're using. You're then not necessarily communicating with a judge who works in the same industry as you, but you're also communicating with lay people and there are rules around that. It, it does sound though, I think you raised an interesting point about um, dealing with questions in moves. Yeah. I, I think I'm in full agreement there. When you look at an actual trial in real life, it's very much, they're trying to get to the bottom of something. So it's very much, um, you know, judge asks a very pointed question about submissions that they often broadly agree with, and they're just getting, they're often clarifying things. Whereas, I know that in a moot, something that a lot of people don't know early on is that just because you're getting questions doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Yeah. Arguably, you know, if you're getting a lot of questions that are difficult, it's probably because you're doing quite well, and they're trying to poke holes in your argument to see how you're doing. And... I mean, I, I think that's something like a lot of people just need to be aware of early on because they get derailed often by the fact that they think they might be getting the law, the law wrong, which is why yeah. they're getting so many questions. Yes, for sure. I remember um, in, in my third year of mooting, uh, I, I heard that um, in, in feedback first from a um, friend or mentor of mine who had judged me in a preliminary round in competition. Um, and she said, don't you should embrace questions you should learn to take them as areas of concern that the judge has and because they're putting that question to you they uh, have some um, degree of confidence in your ability mm -hmm. to assist them as as an advocate and as um, counsel um, and so and so for sure like there there is that misconception like very very common mooting um, and you know people should learn to uh, engage in those sorts of difficult um, discussions more, I think. I mean, speaking from the other side of that, I've had the opportunity to judge a couple of moots. Mm -hmm. To agree with you on, on that point, I don't think I've ever had to, I don't think I've ever asked a hard question of someone that's already struggling because I feel like as a general rule, you don't want to kick them when they're down. If they're already super nervous and shaking, you don't then pile on a, a difficult question and just completely break them. So, if you're if you're getting a question, uh, it's probably because they don't think you're going to break. But I think to sort of like look at that idea of embracing questions as well, I think it's an idea that's quite relevant in practice as well. Because uh, often when you get questions from a judge in real life, it's simply an opportunity to clarify something that might have been mistaken earlier. And it's something I've learned uh, speaking to various partners and barristers that I've worked, I've had the opportunity to work with because. You would rather have that opportunity to clarify at that point rather than have a misunderstanding occur and then God knows what happens later on. Uh, Diana, I know that, taking you back a bit, I know that you mentioned uh, in your cover letter you both uh, linked firm values to things that you've done and you also talk about how the third section of your cover letter involves talking about a firm-specific uh, value to you and why you're applying to it. 
how do you go about this process? Are there certain things that you look for? Are there any resources that you use? And generally speaking, how, how do you go about the process of gathering that information? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so the main thing, um, well, the, the very first thing I, I look for is exactly what the firm is looking for in their candidates or in their clerkships or the people that work there. Um, so usually on their um, recruitment website, they'll say things like, these are the skills we're looking for. Uh, we want someone who um, is, uh, for example, is, is curious about the law, um, is passionate about it, can work in a team, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I find that information useful because not only can I put those exact words in my cover letter or um, in my CV when I'm describing previous experiences, for example, but also I think it's a good indication of if you yourself think that you are a good fit for that firm. Um, beyond that, though, um, I usually just look to the firm's website itself. Um, and if I know people who have previous experiences um, with that firm might decide to reach out to them and ask them questions about what it was like to work there. Um, and when I'm on the website, the sorts of things I look for are um, what practice areas uh, does the firm have? Do those practice areas align with the things and the areas of law that I'm interested in? How involved is this firm in the community? What does their pro bono work like? What is the extent that they show off their pro bono work um, as well? Which I think is important um, in being able to um, indicate that this firm is, is engaged in their community. And something that's related to that is also, has that firm, for example, sponsored law competitions or been involved in the law school? Because if they have, then that, that's, that, that's going to make me more likely seriously consider them because um, you know, law school is such a massive aspect of any law graduate's life. Um, uh, and also things like whether they have a commitment to diversity, whether they have a commitment to um, making more women partners, for example. Um, all of those things. Oh, that's interesting. I like that you mentioned uh, using exact words that uh, have come up on a firm's website. I think that it's a quite, it's a really budget way of letting the firm know that you've actually done your research, right? Like to actually use their words and just essentially let them know, like I've actually had a look at your website. I think there's a tendency for, maybe it's come out of like law school, right? And like turn it in, calling us out for plagiarism, but we tend to look at things and like immediately we just start rewriting it. Like, yep, let's, you, you talk about excellence and I talk about technical doing your job well or something like that. But it's actually counterproductive, right? I think it's probably easier to just simply use the words that the firm uses to let them know that you have looked at their website and that you're now linking direct things. Like make it obvious to them, right? Yeah. Another, another really interesting thing, though, I think a relatively newer aspect of, I think, job searching for our generation is this sort of commitment to looking at firms' values over things that we care about. Like you mentioned, uh, for example, their commitments to diversity and whether they have, you know, say, gender equity uh, initiatives in place. Another, another, are there any other values that you sort of look for in these firms in terms of aligning that with your own personal values? Mm -hmm. So I, I mentioned in my elevator pitch that um, one of my values is learning. Um, I, I absolutely just love being challenged and continually um, learning new things uh, because, you know, um, what's to lose from having your worldview challenged and having your, the, the boundaries of your universe expanded? Um, so for me, something that I also 
um, look for that aligns with my values in particular are the learning opportunities or the development um, opportunities that the firm will offer. Um, so for example, I know some firms um, will have on their website uh, the, the typical development journey of a, of, a, of a graduate, where that graduate can expect to be in two, five, ten years, um, and perhaps um, whether if that firm offers like secondment opportunities, for example, who are the secondment partners, um, and, and whether I would be potentially interested in working for those partners. Um, and so uh, that is that is a, a key thing that um, I'm also looking for when I pursue Perviewer firm's website. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I think it's something that I personally look at as well. Like I'm, I'm big on continued learning. I'm, I'm big on the fact that we don't really stop learning just because, say, we finish university or any formal education. One of the things I personally look forward for, and it's sort of linked together, right, is how innovative a firm is, and we're talking actual genuine innovations, right? Obviously, I'd say pretty much all firms talk about being innovative, but you also look at our genuine outputs, like the degree to which they engage with things which are actually with tech and emerging other technologies. And for me, these things link together because a firm that is innovative is inherently one that must value learning because they're embracing new concepts, new ideas, and in order to actually even spot these opportunities, to me, it seems like that firm needs to invest in its people and have the best people to look out for these opportunities, who are aware of emerging trends and can spot those opportunities. So uh, I personally look for innovation and I look for that in areas where you might see our uh, firm development. So their, their insights tab, their news tab, any announcements they make on that. And I mean, more generally, I also just chuck every firm into Google and the Google News tab and see what, where, where they're being mentioned in the news. Are they being mentioned in collaborations with innovative partners? Are they getting involved in these sorts of things that show that they're really genuinely progressing uh, an innovative agenda? To sort of take you back, I want to talk about uh, mooting again, though, because it seems like mooting has been a relatively formative experience that uh, has contributed towards... Um, I suppose the experiences that you've gone after and also what you bring to the table. For I know that there are various different levels of listeners out there and we're looking at newer law students here. Can you give us like a, a relatively like a mooting 101 feel here? Like I know some people don't even know what mooting is. So like what is mooting? So mooting is um, the, the sort of thing that um, when you're in high school and you think about, I want to do law, you think people in courtrooms, you think about people making arguments. Mooting is the, 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 the like, in my opinion, the law student's um, dream because, you know, who doesn't want to put on a suit and um, represent, albeit fictional parties and fictional issues and, 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 dis, and debate issues with your peers in front of a judge. Um, so really what it is, is, is um, more specifically though, a simulation of appellate court proceedings. So um, while competitions are in, in Australasia, like the witness examination, focus on the trial aspect and the first instance hearing, the um, moot is about um, exploring issues that have been appealed from a lower court decision. So that is, 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 is the, the definition of, of, of mooting. Um, and if you want, Johnny, I can, mm. I can like, chat to you about like, beginner's tips and advanced tips. Um, 
whatever you like. <laughs> I, I reckon that's an interesting distinction to make early on because I don't think I don't think early uh, year law students actually know the difference between appellate and trial uh, hearings, right? And I think it's something that affects their ability to move as well because mm. it's sort of like put it in layman's terms, right? It's a weird word to use, but trial hearings are pretty much the first time a case is being heard before a court. And I think the main thing that happens when we make that distinction is that in trial hearings, you deal with a lot of uh, evidentiary issues. So whether or not evidence is accepted. So, you know, the the um, very conventional questions of, you know, whether or not evidence is hearsay, like whether or not it's admissible for other reasons, such as, you know, tendency and coincidence rules or, or other exclusionary rules, uh, is something that often happens at our trial. But then when we talk about appellate hearings, it's, it's pretty much always limited to a question of law. So you're not disputing whether or not certain facts happen. Uh, but you're then disputing whether or not those facts uh, uh, produce a result that is in line with certain legal positions. And I feel like it's, it, it's such a weird area to distinguish on. And uh, it, I think it's quite difficult to like sort of get that into someone when they haven't had much legal experience as well. So mm-hmm. I think you put it quite concisely there. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not a distinction um, a lot of people uh, at some point make in law school. I mean, w- w- one of our Mooting Society presidents um, recently just, just had an epiphany that, you know, why aren't we discussing evidentiary issues in, in Moots? Well, it's because it's, it's an appellate court proceeding. And so um, it's, it's certainly an easy uh, um, distinction to blur. I mean, to take a quick attention here, though, I think... As a general rule, it seems like we don't really deal with evidentiary issues in law school at all, right? Like, we study uh, disparate... Or, or, okay, speaking for the Australian experience, you might, you might want to add a chip in here for New Zealand, but from the Australian university perspective, we study um, disparate substantial topics. So, like, we talk about, you know, court law, we talk about criminal law, we talk about equity and trust, etc. But almost... I'd say pretty much we never actually delve into the evidentiary issues that lead up to legal decisions in those cases. So we only talk about the ratio and the legal principles that come out of it. Yet to, to take it all the way back to the beginning of the podcast here, talking about like that difference between uh, commercial law and practicing law and theory, uh, I feel like a lot of actual real-world cases hinge on evidentiary issues, whether or not a certain piece of evidence is accepted and that could pretty much entirely derail or take a case to victory, depending on whether or not that piece of evidence is accepted. Mm-hmm. It's just a bit of a tangent there. So to sort of like take you up on that offer before, where you know you talked about tip. So to sort of reiterate, I feel like we need to just talk about the fact that uh, you participated in the Philip C. Jacob mood, and for people who are not in mooding circles, I reckon. The Jessup moot is probably, arguably, the most prestigious moot in the entire world. Like, it's an international moot. Uh, you go up against unis everywhere around the world. I know that, that, that a lot of American unis participate, etc. And that it's an international comp that's split into, like, domestic uh, preliminary rounds before then expanding into, like, a global behemoth of, like, clashes of, like, every nation, really. So, in, in that context, like, I think it's pretty hard to actually end up on a Jacob team. From, from my experience, like it's it's a relatively competitive process, 
And I can tell that you've been doing moots for a while leading up to that point. So we start with some beginner tips here, because we sort of like just came from a discussion of what mooting is. So to avoid overwhelming the people that have just found out what mooting is, mm. let's talk about firstly what sort of benefits you see to mooting. Like, what have you gained out of mooting? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, so so much. Uh, I, I I can speak for like probably hours about how the extent to which I've gained from having done mooting for as long and as hard as I I have done. You get um, kickbacks from some sort of mooting society. Is this, is this a sales pitch? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's 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 a pitch for mooting generally because I think it's something that if you um are like have the time to invest in doing it, you absolutely should. Um, and that's because one of the thing, one of the key benefits you get from doing it is developing skills that are helpful in your legal essays and your look in your um like uh undergraduate degree or even like postgraduate degree and after that in work and the, the, the sorts of skills I'm talking about are things like legal reasoning, legal research, public speaking is an obvious one, critical thinking, forming an inquiry and conducting research and an investigation to get to the point um, to, to, to get to a solution and then at the end being able to communicate that in simple language to a judge and answer their questions um, and you know like anything practice does make perfect and mooting is just an, another opportunity for you to really invest in developing those skills which will help you in the legal profession which is why like firms uh, and other employers um, in the legal industry, look at mooting or um, very highly on someone's CV, I think. Um, and sort of related to that, another benefit I found from it is mooting gives you an opportunity to engage intimately with an area of law or a specific um, legal issue that you previously might not have mm. been able to um, investigate in depth or like as in depth in class um and if you're like a massive law nerd like me and probably like you johnny then uh, it's it's a fantastic opportunity to build your knowledge in those relatively niche areas to formulate your own opinions on certain aspects of law and um if you are, like are talking about it if you find yourself talking about it in an interview for example um being able to engage your interviewers um, by 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 chatting about your own opinions from from the competition, um, and and the last benefit that I'll talk about is also once you get to a particular level, there are travel opportunities involved, and you just get to make so like the most amazing friends from competing, um, for example, in the international moot circuit like I have. Um, the 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 Philip C. Jessup moot was. Um, a tremendous opportunity for me to reunite with friends that I had met at previous international moot competitions and also to make new ones. And I, you know, I'm in my final year of uni now and I reflect back on what I've done uh, in, in, in my legal career at uni. And I think to myself, well, some of my most happy but also most heartbreaking moments <laughs> have been on the international moot circuit where I've, you know, like broken at competitions, but also like not broken at competitions. And it's the friends who I've made and my teammates and my coaches who have surrounded me to make that experience 
worthwhile and just so heartening. Um, and I, I, the last thing I'll say is because you're meeting people um, at this level from all around the world, they teach you, they, they've taught me so much about um, like the, the, the unifying potential of law and of international law in particular, of um, their communities and countries and backgrounds, but also myself and, and the way that um, I, you know, come into new environments, um, especially competitive environments, um, and how I, I, I thrive or I don't in those. Um, and so mooting is, is, is very close to my heart, which you can probably tell, uh, and it, it gets you all those benefits. Oh, you're you dropping some mad value there, Diana. Like, I reckon that's a pretty comprehensive summary of like, the benefits of mooting. But actually, to clarify one thing before we do go on, um, you mentioned breaking a couple of times, and <laughs> I reckon that's, that's pretty specific moot slash debate lingo there. Uh, and, and to kind of explain to like everyone, um, when you break at a competition, it means that you've made it past the preliminary rounds into one of the final rounds. So usually the quarterfinals or potentially the octofinals of a competition. So it's it's really like recognition that you are one of the best mooters slash debaters in the particular tournament that you're at. Uh, and breaking is considered a massive achievement. So, I mean, that's where the joy comes from, breaking yeah. international comps. Yeah. To take you up on, on, on a couple of those points, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the um, development of niche legal knowledge. I think one thing that people might not be aware of in relation to mooting is that you're very rarely given sort of like a stock standard problem. You, you, you're always given um, a problem that's over an area that's quite topical because inherently the nature of moots is that it, it needs to be quite balanced. You can't have one side different railroad the other side with you know, high, high court or supreme court authority after authority, right? So you're usually looking at an area that's quite unsettled, which means that you're looking at relatively new law. You're looking at topical issues that are currently potentially causing issues in the profession. And to sort of go back to what Diana said, like both before and after that discussion, uh, it's really good interview material, right? Because beyond, uh, you know, you do your subjects at law school and you say you do criminal law, you do commercial law, you do whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And the topics that you deal with in class are almost always the fundamentals. So you look at the foundations of what that particular legal area is. Maybe if uh, your lecturers at Cooper are mean, they might throw in a couple of assessments that deal with contemporary law, but mooting is an opportunity to quite consistently deal with that sort of thing where you're consistently dealing with evolving law and new uh, issues in the law. Mm -hmm. Take you up on what you said about like speaking at interviews, though. Do you, are there any specific instances that you remember talking about your mooting experience in interviews? And can you tell us like, a little bit about it? Sure, yes. Um, a, a very recent experience, actually, when um, I interviewed for a judge's clerkship position with the New Zealand Supreme Court and Court of Appeal. Um, so... Uh, that this d relates directly to what you're saying, Johnny, about um, discussing the contemporary issues that are often presented in mooting problems in interviews in order to demonstrate to the interviewers, in this case, um, justices of the New Zealand Supreme Court and Court of Appeal, that you were someone, a young person, passionate about the law and also engaged with the um, cutting edge issues that um, are, are, are being presented at the moment. 
So I was asked a question about um, from when I did contract law, what is a case that I remember from contract law and why do I remember it or why did I find that case interesting? And what I was able to say was, well, um, I pointed to um, one of our uh, 2018 High Court, Auckland High Court um, decisions, which was um, Honeybee Preschools and 127 Hobson Street, which recasted the test for contractual penalties in New Zealand. And I could talk about how in that particular decision, um, Justice Fata uh, made a very careful consideration of overseas authorities. Um, and I was only able to um, you know, talk about that case in as much detail as I could because the restatement of contractual penalties was an issue in you know last year's Australian Nationals final, mm. and um, before that at a, at um, our Stout Shield, which is um, Auckland Law School's most prestigious mood, um, and I think it's probably come up a few times as well. The key thing, though, in, in my answer was um, it turned out, um, and I, I hadn't known this. I was just I was just I was just um, like casually scrolling through LinkedIn one evening before my interview, and I saw that the Supreme Court had actually recently reaffirmed that very, um, that, that very high court decision um, that, you know, recasted the test for contractual penalties. And I was like, this is really cool. Like, th th this is something that I would be able to tie into my answer. Um, and so I did. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I thought that was um, uh, a, a, a relatively like, okay question, answer to give to that question. I think it's interesting as well, for like, to sort of expand on that and take you back as well, you mentioned that public speaking was something that you developed through mooting, and it makes sense, right? Like, you're, you're standing there on your feet, mm -hmm. uh, presenting an argument or a point of view, and you're also, you're also having to defend it through questions. Like you sort of mentioned before, when judges start poking holes in all your various uh, submissions. I think... An underrated element of mooting is the fact that you probably become better or you, you, you come across better at interviews, right? Because <laughs> if you think about it from a really weird perspective here, interviews are basically just like moots without yeah. the law. Like you're presenting your own value and then you're defending it against people who are asking you questions about it. Like, tell me a time you did this. Like, how did you do that? And you mentioned in the benefits of mooting. One of the key benefits is just the fact that you're literally doing the thing, right? Like you're literally speaking. And I made a really quick video about this recently, which touches on it, but I think public speaking is one of those things that you actually can't get better unless you physically throw yourself into it. Like, I used to read books about public speaking and how there were different tactics that you could use to, for example, briefing techniques that you could use to slow down and become more composed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I did a debating speech. Um, <laughs> I have that in my mind. I'm like, stay calm make sure to breathe, breathe in, breathe out. But it took me about 30 seconds before, like, I felt, like, literal fire in my face. Was, I felt like it was so hot. And I, I don't remember what I was saying, but it was one big ramble for about a minute and a half before I just sat down and I'm like, I don't think I'm ever going to do that again. But, you know, a couple years down the line and through experiences like debating and mooting, you, uh, I don't know about you, but, like, I, I, I felt that we've both, come a long way and just simply become better at that sort of thing where even if I mean literally the, the other day I did a video interview for um, one of the government graduate programs and you know how the video interviews work they give you like a minute 
to prepare and read the question and then two minutes to actually answer it. Well, what I did was I accidentally double clicked on the next button and I just skipped the, the one minute, uh, the one minute preparation period completely. So you could literally see in the video interview, like the first two seconds of that question were just me like, and like <laughs> just that moment of realization that I didn't have any prep time. I just read the question and went with it. But I don't think I would have been able to do that without, you know, experiencing debating and reading it. It teaches you to calm down. Yeah. To gather your thoughts and be okay with silence, I think yeah. that, that's actually a really underrated part of mooding. Like the ability to just stand there, take a question, and yeah. not rush to just blurt out an answer immediately, but actually gather your thoughts and give a cohesive response. Mm -hmm. It's precisely because of how underrated that exact thing is, and how beneficial it is to develop that skill that um, I think is, is something that, for, especially for people who are just beginning out and mooting, um, should be told more. Um, and the, 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 the thing I'm saying here is, um, with, like with anything, it, it just it, it takes time. Like these sorts of things, we can't expect to get better at them overnight. Um, for sure, there are people who, you know, are naturally charismatic, naturally um, amazing at um, public speaking and um, can do that stuff really, really well. But certainly it doesn't mean that if you don't have it already or you're not currently particularly strong at it, you, you won't ever develop it. Um, because I remember like my, my very first moot ever, um, I didn't even make it into the, the, the next round. Like I was knocked out of, of, of prelims and I'm pretty sure my, my judges thought that I was like, like I, I just treated it like a debate essentially. I, I didn't mm. you know, refer to any authorities. I was speaking way too fast um, and treating Christians like they were a threat to, to shut down at a point mm. of information. Um, but then since then um, I've, I've you know, stuck to it um, and I've, I've, you know, uh, competed in, in internal competitions and, and national competitions um, and international competitions. Um, and so it, it's just, you just got to stick to it. Like if, if it's a skill you want to develop, it's, there's no um, magic secret. Just, you just got to keep practicing. Well, look, Diana, I think that we've talked a lot about these valuable lessons and I'm hoping by now, you know, young students listening are like, yes, let's do some mooting. So what are some things that you might want to, what are any tips or advice that you would like to give to anyone thinking about starting out mooting? Like, where, where would you start? What sort of mindset do you have? What sort of things should you be aware of, etc.? Mm -hmm. The first piece of advice I'd give in terms of mindset is that being excellent at mooting takes time and a lot of energy and effort and investment. Um, some young mooters might, um, or, or new mooters might decide to, um, uh, and this is something else I would advise as well, take advantage of all the resources that are available to them. So for example, um, going to attend your uh, law faculty moot finals, um, if your law society has a note bank of written submissions or even past videos of finals, um, to, 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 to watch those things. But also to keep in mind that 
the people who you see presenting um, in what, in your opinion, could be seamless and beautiful performances have put in so much work and countless hours of effort and research and um, restructuring arguments uh, and, and arguments with their teammate even um, to get to that level. So I think the, the, the very first thing to do is um, to have the mindset. It takes time to get good at this. It takes time but if you're passionate about it then um it's the, the development journey that is almost just as rewarding oh well no um is, is just as rewarding um if not more than um breaking or um, making it into finals or even the win uh if you're lucky enough to get there um the next thing i'll say um is the Art and mooting is about persuasion. Um, it's, it's an advocacy exercise, and when you're an advocate, your goal is to persuade. And persuasion um, and mooting in particular comes from pointing the judge or your assessor to what previous judges have said about a particular issue. This was um, something that came out in feedback of a, in, a, in a senior moot final that I went to go watch a few years ago. And I've noted it in the, in the notes app on my phone ever since, um, because so many people might begin mooting, uh, for example, from a debating perspective, whereby it's so easy to read a fact scenario and instantly, as a matter of principle, jump to what you think is the, the right outcome, what is the right, uh, um, where does the justice the justice of this case lie. And while that exercise, that principled exercise, and thinking about where the justice of this case lies is helpful to an extent, um, ultimately, uh, the, the, the reason it's a law competition and not like a debating competition is because authorities are persuasive, um, pointing uh, uh, to what previous judges have held and um, the, 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 even, even the obiter comments mm. are so persuasive to the bench and to the person who is judging you. Um, and too many people forget that, especially um, just starting out uh, as, as, as a young mooter. Uh, so those would be like my um, my fundamental tips. That's interesting. I think to take you off on some of those, I think uh, an interesting thing to note at the outset is just the fact that um, you notice some feedback at the senior moot finals, and to sort of tie in with that first point you made about the development journey. Uh, from my perspective, at least, one of the biggest tips I can give any young mooter is to take feedback really seriously right? like it's something i feel like we get um we get from debate culture because i think debate culture is very much like after every debate we're like yes give me some feedback what could i improve on and it's something that's not quite as prevalent in moot culture at times i feel like at times people are just interested in like oh did i did i win the moot or not but really to focus on that development journey i think it matters a lot less whether or not you win a moot just because at times, it will often just be decided by which side of the case you're on. Like, certain cases are simply weighed in certain ways. But I think the true value of mooting comes from the fact that you're often exposed to people who are better at mooting than you. Uh, sometimes you're, like, I mean, some people might not know this, but like, in the final round of uh, more prestigious moots, you'll often have, like, senior judicial officers, like, literal, you know, justices of courts come in to judge you, and they'll also give you feedback on your performance. But even at the junior level, you're looking at 
gaining feedback from people who have either mooted a lot more than you or sometimes junior practitioners who do the sort of things for a living. I know at my uni, we have barristers come in that often deal with actual advocacy issues in court. So, I mean, my biggest piece of feedback is, I mean, my biggest piece of advice is to focus on that feedback. And some tips on feedback as a good tangent to this are to be really specific with the feedback. I think that it's quite tempting to leave the question open to your, um, your assessor to just go, oh, how can I improve? And I think that's something that's useful to do uh, at the end of when you ask the feedback. But I think it's often um, a lot more useful to be specific with your feedback. So to look at specific areas you want to develop, for example, use of authority. So you might ask uh, your judge, uh, did I use the authorities appropriately? Did I quote them correctly? Uh, did I draw out their value and significance in relation to the case? Or you might focus on something I think most people need help with at the beginning of their moot journeys, um, the ability to respond to questions. Did I respond to your questions uh, well? Did I address the thing that you, you were thinking of when you asked that question? And the more specific you can be, uh, the better the feedback will be because you've directed the judge's mind to particular instances that they then bring up and then bring back rather than leaving it open, which uh, again, I think it's tempting because you don't want to restrain their autonomy here. You don't, you don't want to, you know, say, oh, I, I only value your feedback in this particular area. But I think it's the other way around, right? Like you're showing value for their time by letting them know that there are specific areas that you do want to develop on. So that, that, that's feedback more generally. Uh, I think a really important point in terms of mindset is that Moodles often don't understand that Oh, sorry, young, young law students who haven't mooted often think that mooting is a bit of a legal presentation where, you're, you, you know, you have this perfect script of a legal argument and you deliver it and the judge is blown away and they're like, yes, you've won the case. Counsel approach, you've won the case. But I think the reality is that young mooters need to understand that it's a bit of a conversation. It's sort of like an exploratory journey. The judge is exploring your point of view and it's a bit like the conversation we have now like it's there's no way this would have been a good conversation if either you or me had this complete script of what we were going to talk about like yep um i'm going to say this you're going to say this i'm going to say this you're going to say this yeah and in in looking at that i think the, the key to really understanding mooting is that and, and this is this also serves to like uh understand why our young mooters often fear questions but Questions really guide you in that journey because you're having a conversation with someone who wants to be persuaded. Like that's the reality. Right? Like they want to see your point of view, and they're going to have certain questions about that. It's not going to be a perfect presentation because for some, sometimes they might not care about the first twenty things you say, but they do care about a, a particular sticking point. So having that fluidity and maintaining some degree of flexibility, I think, is really a key to taking someone from you know a legal presenter to, you know, a, a junior mooter who actually understands that you're having a conversation with the judge and engaging with both facts, other parties' arguments, and the judge's questions. Mm -hmm. So, Can I jump in there and, and say two things on that um, conversation element, Johnny? That's something that's very um, near and dear to me in my own mooting experience because for years my my um, consistent piece of feedback was you need to sound more conversational at the moment you're sounding quite robotic you're you're quite monotonic 
um, you need to um, engage the bench more was um, the way uh, that feedback was mm. consistently put to me. Um, and I want to say two things, um, the, and there one of them is probably like a basic um, uh, tip, and the other is more advanced and something that I I found has personally helped me in getting more conversational. And the the, the first of these is it is important to know what the fundamental cornerstones of your argument are. Mm. So these are the stepping stones that um, are that that you cannot concede on and, and are, are fundamental to winning your case. That anything ancillary to those stepping stones or anything extra are things that you don't need and you don't need to say. And if the judge takes you in a, in a different direction, what knowing the cornerstones are uh, is, 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 is really important for is for you is for anchoring yourself back to the internal structure of your argument so that even when you are derailed, you know what the next step is um, based on what you've already established and what you have yet to establish in order to get to the um, solution that you want to get to. Um, so, so knowing what those are and knowing what is extra to that um, is, is really important. The second thing I will say is for, for those who um, are perhaps more mature in mooting already um, and you might have established your own tone or your own style, I will say to experiment around with that style, to experiment around with your tone as well. And, and a, a really good thing that I discovered late in my mooting journey um, to help this is to, in your practices, try and present your um, legal arguments in a way that you would never in a final. So for example, you might be really enthusiastic and, and like deliberately overly enthusiastic in your performance. So then that way, if you are quite a, or a naturally measured speaker, then by the time you get to finals, you know where to dial back in on that. But the, the, the point of that exercise is to let you know what your voice and what your performance is capable of. And who knows, like maybe being overly exaggerated or um, pausing for longer than you would feel uncomfortable for or speaking in a higher pitch or a lower pitch might actually add to um, the delivery and, and how persuasive you are. Um, and so um, what that goes down to is just experiment around with your style and with your tone. Um, still have a style that is true to who you are and, and can bring your personality through. Um, but to get to the higher levels requires knowing exactly where the limits are on your style. Um, and if you are able to um, have a, 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 a tone that um, is, is energetic and engaging uh, and at the same time can still be conversational, then that is, is, is only um, a, a good thing. I think we need, we need to have you back for a full session just on mooting techniques. I think there's so much to unpack in that sort of thing, right? Because uh, from my experiences, um, there's so many elements of your body language that need controlling. Like you sort of mentioned a couple there already, like your pace, your tone, uh, your your pitch. And these are all highly intentional things, right? Like the pace at which you speak often needs to be slower. The pitch that you speak at often needs to be lower as well. And uh, then there are elements of nonverbal communication through body language. Uh, I, 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 don't know, I don't know about you, but uh, coming from debating, we were very much gestures everywhere. And then at, at mooting, you 
you, you grab onto the lectern and you stay there for, uh, I mean, I'm keen to team up with you again for like a full session just on unpacking and moving technique. But I, I think those are really good starting points. And I want to focus in on the fact that you need to have an understanding of your cornerstones. And I'm going to tell you a story about where this went wrong, really. Uh, it was the very first time I mooted, actually. And, and it ended very badly. And to, to cut this story uh, shorter than it should be, the gist of it was that it was a tort law moot, and I was on uh, what would be the, the plaintiff side, but was the respondent in, in the appeal. And, you know, basic position on negligence, there had to be, I, I had to hit all three heads, right? So duty of care, uh, breach of care, standard of care, and causation. I don't know if, I, I'm assuming it's pretty much the same thing in New Zealand in terms of negligence principles. And what you sort of realize after you do talks and hopefully, you know, before you do your exam is that these three things are concurrent elements rather than alternative elements. So you can't just prove one or the other. You have to prove that there was a duty, that it was breached, and that it was caused by uh, the wrongdoing. And, like, you need to hit all three on the plaintiff side. Yeah, I, I, I think I was in, like, week four of, of talks at that point, and I was doing this moot for the first time, and my... my I had a partner who was a senior uh, Armuda and they actually dropped out. So I was on my own. It was a bit of a bad situation to be in. I got pushed, I got pushed by the judge on the very first element of the case, like whether or not there was a duty of care. And after I, I think about maybe six or seven minutes, I just, in my head, like I was panicking. I'm like, they're just not buying it. I don't, I don't know where to, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like we're all familiar with the feeling. Like you just like, I'm mind blanking. I don't have an answer to like that position. They've stated that they don't believe me. I should probably just let them have it. So I'm like, I, I was taught the terminology, you know, so like uh, over here, we're like, you know, uh, you're on a, I, I won't push any higher on that point. Uh, we're happy to concede that point. And I start the next one and he's like, if you don't have a duty of care, how can you prove a breach of that uh, standard of care? And this is probably an example of, um, you know, a contradiction to what I said earlier about not kicking someone when they're down. But I was very much down. And I think like there was no actual way to make the law consistent with what I've done. I don't think they enjoyed doing that for Cray, but literally you can't have a breach after you've conceded duty. So um, at, at that point, I pretty much didn't know my cornerstones. I didn't realize that these three things had to be tied together. And so I conceded that first element of duty and that was it. Like that was pretty much the end of my mood. I was like, oh, you're on a, um, I am indebted to the court. That concludes my submissions. May it please the court. And like, I mean, I think it's a decent example of like understanding your cornerstones and what things you can and can't concede on. Um, to sort of like dive into the advanced tips, I know that you mentioned like we've been dealing with some more basic tips here. So if someone already does have some grounding in mooting, what are some things that take them from a decent mooter to a Jessup mooter? Yeah, okay. Um, so, um, what I was saying before about experimenting around with tone and, and style, that is, um, I think, uh, quite, quite up there in terms of the advanced tips that I would um, give. So, um, what I want to begin with is, 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 is the idea of mooting as a performance. 
So yes, while it is a conversation, it, it is also a very measured, formal conversation. And um, previous influential coaches of mine have, have asked me um, or told me to um, think about it as a performance. And because it is a performance, that means there must be key strategic decisions that are made of the elements that go into it. So, um, Johnny, you were you 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 listed them um, basically all before pace, pitch, tone. Pitch is 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 um, probably the least important because it's like you you're, you're pitch, you, you, you people have a baseline pitch. Like there's only so, so much you can do about that. Um, but certainly there are moments in your performance where you might um, you can afford to be for example a little bit um, emotional and when you you are emotional you might decide to pause more you might decide to slow down you might decide to um, have the most hand gestures in that part of your performance in order to help with the um, intention of of um, demonstrating that emotional aspect on the reverse side, you might decide um, to uh, um, like pause at particular moments or to um, really like put put um, variation in your tone in other areas when you're trying to emphasize a particular point or in points that you you want to um, shy attention from the judges away from. And so it's those strategic decisions that you make about your voice, about the way you carry yourself, and also about the way um, you choose to use hand gestures um, that are um, uh, quite advanced tips, I think. Um, with regards to your particular analogy, Johnny, like that's, that's a... Um, uh, um, Dramatic example, but also not irredeemable because um, what I will say in, in situations where um, you do find yourself going down a discussion that you don't want to have that you don't want to be having, you can afford to be a bit firmer with the bench at that point. So, for example, um, it, with yours, you could say, um, my, my apologies, Your Honor, I did not mean to concede on that point. Um, in any case, I in the time that I have remaining. Perhaps I might best assist you by addressing the second element of um, negligence. Um, and it's, it's fine to be um, a little bit firm with the bench like that because um, ultimately you are counsel, it's your client, you're there to advocate for them. And, uh, uh, and while you are an officer of the court, you're less, um, um, I guess, like inclined to. Um, well, yeah, it's, 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 it's a balancing act, I think. Um, like, like, help the judge also represent your client. Um, you strike that balance um, in any um, uh, particular set of circumstances. Um, the, 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 the final thing that I, I think I'll say on this is to, once you're at a particular level um, and you're considering doing the GESIP, perhaps, is to tell a story, um, you know, keep in mind that while these are fictional parties, they are still parties with their own motivations and their own, you know, stories and incentives. And the most persuasive mooters are not only the people who um, can engage well with the bench, but are able to, in their engagement, demonstrate to the bench that they have taken a step back from all the you know case law or the facts or the evidence and thought to themselves 
where is the justice of this case? Um, what is the um, like the the objectively like fair outcome for my client, or it could be for the other side? And how am I able to demonstrate that humanity to the bench by telling that story, but also by making it simple? Um, so you know, like some people are intimidated because they think, well, mooting is 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 so um, you know a, 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 like advanced, so sophisticated and complicated. And while that is true, um, the the best mooters are able to portray all of that complexion, all of that. Well, I'm not sure if that's the right word, complicity, um, complexness, um, complicatedness, um, all of that, that mess. Okay, that legal mess in the simplest of terms and it, it might seem counterintuitive because you know they say um you know at the beginning you should start simple and then work your way to get more complicated and difficult but really i think the mooting trajectory is a sort of like curve mm. whereby you start simple get more complicated and then come back down again because it's only after you've dealt with the peak where you know um what the 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 simplest path is after that um, yeah, probably just those for now. Well, I mean, like, I feel like we're completely on the same page there. I think, I think that's actually probably the literal biggest misconception that happens in mooting, other than like you know the basic ones we've talked about. But it's the idea that you need to make things complicated. Um, some of the best advocates I've ever met, uh, including both you know people I've seen who moot very well, but also actual life practitioners who are very from between barristers to judges but one of the pieces of advice they've always given is that simplicity is always better than any degree of uh, complexity complexity that's that's the word wow uh, but you know like when you dive into the case law on any topical issue you're invariably going to get swamped with you know conflicting opinions uh different factual matrices 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 Jesus. vocab a, a struggle right now but the point is like inherently you're dealing with complexity but uh the best advocates make that simple so i think you're perfectly right in saying that it's a bit of a curve you start out with the most simple version of the message and i mean i, I think i made i made a video about this as well it's the idea of like putting the conclusion first right like you want to put the essence of your submission into what I think should be one or two lines. That's pretty much, it, it encapsulates your entire position. And this is where questions once again come in, right? It's the idea that you should give the judge a roadmap to everything that you want to say. And it's then up to them to pick that apart. They might say, I agree with this part of your submission, but I have a question or I have difficulty understanding this part. And that's why you start with that simplicity, right? You start with everything encapsulated in one or two nice sentences and then it's up to them to break that down into the complex parts that make up that statement but once you've dealt with that you then return back to that nice simple pretty much conclusion that you've now established is acceptable to the judge including what they've asked you uh, i think simplicity is probably the most the least understood part of mooting because it is so inherently complex at times but simplicity is probably a really good advanced tip um, to sort of, uh, I guess, deal with this idea of questions as well, I think the only second, the only thing I would add to these advanced tips here is in terms of answering questions, I think 
people misunderstand that it's a bit of an inherent skill. I, I think it's a mixture, right? It's something that you develop, but it's also something that you prepare for. I think this is probably where it helps you with interview skills, right? But the idea behind, I, I think, mooting often is that you're preempting at least 80% of the questions that get thrown to you. Ideally, you want to preempt like 100%, but from experience, you usually get thrown by maybe one or two questions anyway when they realize you can't answer questions. But <laughs> the idea is that you want to preempt the sorts of uh, answers, uh, sorry, the sorts of questions you might get in a particular line of argument. And often, this will be useful in terms of thinking of what arguments the other side's going to make. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, lawyers in practice do quite often. They think about what the other side's key arguments are going to be and where, uh, you know, particular factual um, pieces of evidence or factual um, key facts that press down on weak points in their case. And in terms of then dealing with that, once again, reverting back to that idea of the fact that mooting is very much about authority, uh, at least I think the starting point to respond to questions often is simply to distinguish cases, right? I think often you get questions on the applicability of case law or, uh, or the non-applicability of case law at times. And the ability to then distinguish and say, you know, this case is different to the present scenario for, you know, these three reasons and therefore should be treated differently in this way. It's a handy way for you to respond to questions in a meaningful way when you, it feels like you've often got your back pressed against the wall because they're challenging your key authority. Um, the very last thing I, I think is important here, and, you know, I feel like my tips are at, at this point like intermediate tips, whereas you, you've given like the real advanced tip here. Uh, I think the last thing to mention here is knowing once again, I, I think it's very similar to like understanding your cornerstones, but it's knowing when to give up a certain, uh, to concede. Because I, I think one of the things that happens, uh, from my experience is that judges will often throw in hypothetical argument, uh, like things to you. They, they might ask you, okay, but, 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 you know, Mr. Nguyen, if this were to happen, then what? And often, they'll often just be throwing you uh, a red herring, right? Like, if that did change, you would be happy to concede the case. But from experience, as, as uh, an intermediate mooter, I sort of, you know, after that torch case, I had it inbuilt into my head that I was never going to concede anything again <laughs> because I didn't want to derail my argument like that again. So I'll just stick to my guns. Yet often at times, judges will throw in those red herrings. You know, Mr. Nguyen, if this, then that, then what? And I'll just argue it ferociously. And at the end, they give me feedback like, you know, you could have conceded that without hurting your case. I was, I was just wasting your time, but yeah. you took the bait. Um, I think that's that's it for me, unless you've got anything to add on those things. Um, and, and sometimes, just, just quickly on that, um, you are required to stand for hard lines. Um, and those hard lines are uncomfortable because um, that's why, you know, the issue is on appeal. Uh, it's why we are spending all this time, money, and well, um, fictional money and resources to um, argue this case before a court. Um, and and what, what a really good example of a hard line is um, one of the issues from this year, uh, last year's Jessup, well, this year's Jessup problem issue came out uh, last year, um, which was about the extent to which we value um, the immunity of our foreign um, diplomats uh, oh. or even um, our heads of state and our ministers of foreign affairs against the sanctity of prosecuting uh, war crimes. 
So in our, in our particular mm. um, case, a Minister of Foreign Affairs had been charged by the International Criminal Court for war crimes, but they also had um, um, state immunity. And the question is, if on one side you're prepared to stand for, we should prosecute these war crimes because they're terrible, they're the highest, the prohibition against war crimes is the highest norm we have in international law. Are you prepared to stand for the potential unfolding of international relations because this person can no longer enjoy immunity? Yes, I'm prepared to stand for that. I say that the war crimes are important, are more important or important enough to warrant that sacrifice. And similarly, on the other side, it's like, mm. are you prepared for these victims to potentially never receive justice because this minister can entrench themselves in power because of their immunity? They have to say, yes, like it's, it's, it's our interest in international relations is, 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 is worth that or something. Um, and so sometimes it's, Sometimes you're you're just in a difficult position, and the art of uh, the the mark of a real advocate is your ability to deal with that bad situation. Um, as is the, the the last thing I'll say on that. Hundred percent. I think I think it's very similar to um, the experience you might get from debating, but it's often having to stand behind the hard lines that you might not personally agree with. But mm. I, I think it's something that. I can't speak from experience, but I would imagine it's relevant to uh, lawyers, just in the sense that I, I can't imagine any lawyer would go throughout their entire career and only mm. represent people that they enti they're entirely principally consistent with. I, mm. I can imagine you'd probably represent someone who has done or not done something that you do not agree with. But once again, that is the art of the advocate and often the job of the lawyer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially for defense counsel, right? It's like you're you're not there because you necessarily agreed with the person who like could have murdered somebody, but you're there because you believe in fair trial rights. Um, and if representing people accused of these crimes is is what it takes to um reinforce our fair trial rights, then yeah, that that is something that defense counsel stand for. Interesting. On that note. I I think I've taken enough of your time. So to wrap up, uh, I've got a couple of more fun topics to talk about. Uh, firstly, I, I know that uh, you're a movie buff rather than a, a big one. <laughs> yes. What's your favourite movie of all time? Like, to end on a fun note. Okay, my favourite movie of all time is Call Me By Your Name. Um, Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name. For the life of me, I've forgotten who the director is. I feel so bad about that. You but it stars um, Timothy Chalamet. Um, and the theme song is Mystery of Love by, oh, I've forgotten their name too, Surian Stevens, I want to say. Um, I love it because it is heartbreakingly beautiful. Um, so that is my favorite film. I'm also a Marvel fan. Um, and my favorite Marvel movies are Ragnarok, go figure, and Doctor Strange. <laughs> I mean, you're you're here sitting here like talking about oh, I don't remember the director's name and I can't remember this and I'm like, you must be amazing at trivia. Like, you're just remembering all these details. Like, I know I don't even know the name of the movie sometimes. I'm like, yeah, it's the one with the uh, the guy with the hammer. Oh yeah, 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 that one, that one. Directed by I don't know, probably Steven Spielberg again. Johnny, if you think that I'm good at trivia, then <laughs> then you've got another thing coming. <laughs> I'm oh, so weak at trivia. <laughs> oh man, law nerds. At least we'll be able to answer like ridiculously specific legal questions. Like mm -hmm. every every now and then, I see them pop up in trivia, and I'm like, I know that. 
what does taught mean in French? That's simple wrong. I know that. I know that from the moot that I absolutely did not crush. I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Jay, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute honor having uh, Jacopian up here in the podcast and talk, uh, talking about all things meeting and really clerkship here, really. Uh, I won't take up too much of your time. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Johnny. This has been a lot of fun, um, and I hope people can uh, get something out of this. I reckon we might gauge interest for a potential uh, meeting seminar where you share like all the fully advanced tips and uh, get people to become pro movies. Like yes, you. happy to do that. All right. Thanks, Diana. All right, family just started cooking in the kitchen, and I'm like, ah, close the kitchen door. There's <laughs> a lot of dishes rumbling around. So, action back in three, two, one. Actually, wait, no, refresh me. What was the last thing you said? Just then? I just didn't remember what I was about to say. Cause I, I just gotta keep practicing. Oh no, we've locked it. We've locked it. I don't. I don't know what was about to come after that. Um, well, I, I was, I was talking about like, um, uh, you're going straight into the blooper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, 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 that is a good question. And I think, um, um, something that people, uh, um, should, uh, uh can you ask that to me again? <laughs> You, you you do what you need to do, Jenny. Like I, you you've got more you know editing experience than I have. So I mean, I, I, yeah. I have zero editing experience, so we might be in trouble. <laughs>